If you like having Bible study in your pocket and you have an iPhone or iPad, why not leave a review? Search Bible Study Evangelista in iTunes and tell everyone how you're loving and lifting all you've been given. Here's Sonia. Let's get social. Connect with me at Bible Study Evangelista on Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, and now you can also find me on the number one Catholic app for iPhone and Android, Laudate. Let's connect. And now, let's get some Bible study in your pocket. It's Bible study spinach that tastes like cake. I'm Sonia Corbett, your Bible study evangelista. We are beginning our series on the seven penitential psalms, and I have been so excited to do this. I've been studying for quite some time, and if you've been watching the Facebook page, I've been kind of giving you a running stream of consciousness as um, it regards the readings in the past couple of weeks. And so what I'm seeing is lots and lots of instruction for us, and it really applies to these seven penitential psalms. So penitential, um, these are sometimes called the hymns of contrition. The Septuagint, or the Greek numbering of these psalms, in some translations is 631, 37, 50, 101, 129, and 142. But in modern Catholic Bibles that follow the Hebrew text, uh, the Masoretic numbering, the Greek numbers might be shown in brackets next to the Hebrew numbers, and they will be then the 6, 32, 38, 51, 102, 130, and 143 in that Hebrew numbering. So if you're not sure which one your Bible follows, just check whether Psalm 50 or 51 begins with, have mercy on me, O God, according to thy steadfast love. That's the penitential psalm known as the Miserere. So the seven penitential psalms, um, that's a designation expressing sorrow for sin. Four were known as penitential psalms by St. Augustine of Hippo in the early 5th century. And that 51st psalm, the Miserere, was recited at the close of daily morning service in the primitive church. But it's still actually part of the liturgy of the hours every Friday morning. And I don't know about you, but I've often been given Psalm 51 as a penance after confession. So St. Athanasius says, Let each one, therefore, who recites the Psalms have a sure hope that through them God will speedily give ear to those who are in need. For if a man be in trouble when he says them, great comfort will he find in them. If he be tempted or persecuted, he will find himself abler to stand the test and will experience the protection of the Lord, who always defends those who say these words. By them to a man will overthrow the devil and put the fiends to flight. If he have sinned, when he uses them, he will repent. If he have not sinned, he will find himself rejoicing that he is stretching out towards the things that are before, and so wrestling in the power of the Psalms, he will prevail. So St. Athanasius gives us that encouragement to pray these Psalms, not necessarily just the penitential Psalms, but all of the Psalms he's really referring to here. But in quoting Origen, Pope John Paul II pointed out that many people don't even recognize their own sinfulness. And he says, quote, Acknowledgement and awareness of sin is, therefore, the fruit of sensitivity that we acquire thanks to the light of God's word. The Holy Father said that sin, besides being an offense against men, is first and foremost a betrayal of God. Nonetheless, he said, the power of God's love overcomes the power of sin, and the disruptive river of evil is less forf forceful than the fruitful water of forgiveness. 
God saves us not because of any righteous deeds we have done, but because of his mercy, as the Holy Father noted. Now, Pope Innocent III, back in 1200-ish, he said that these prayers, the penitential psalms, should be prayed all together during the days of Lent. So every day you would pray all seven of these psalms. And if they can't be said on each day of the season, then they can at least be prayed on Lenten Fridays. Or you could pray one prayer on each of the seven Fridays of Lent, as we're doing. And we're actually going even further by studying them pretty deeply. The traditional practice is to pray all of the Psalms together, either daily or on Fridays, as I mentioned. And another practice, because there are seven of them, is to pray one each Friday or one daily each week leading up to Holy Week. Sarah Chrismeyer actually suggests praying them for the intentions related to the seven deadly sins or the capital sins. But it was the practice of the early church to sing and read the Psalms on Ash Wednesday as part of their penance for sin. And so these penitential Psalms invite us to recognize our sin, to express our sorrow to God and ask his forgiveness and experience the healing of his merciful love. And I pray that that's going to be our, the case with us as we go through each of these seven penitential sin, uh, uh, Psalms. <laughs> Cardinal Sarah when he was speaking on repentance, I, f I found this very interesting because he points out that without repentance, there is no forgiveness. And we're going to talk about repentance in great depth here in a moment, because that's the whole point, really, of these Psalms. But he says an important contemporary philosopher, Fabrice Haddad, has coined a brilliant phrase, the heresies of charity, saying that we confuse charity with the simple desire for good at its best or almsgiving in the worst case. But charity is the love of God. Therefore, we are charity and we give witness of charity toward others because God loved us first. It's the same with mercy, understood superficially by many as a clean slate over sin. But there is no forgiveness if there is no repentance. Jesus did not say to the adulteress, well, go and continue to do what you're doing since I forgive you. No, because she threw herself at his feet and begs for forgiveness. He says, go and sin no more. So that is our goal in approaching these seven penitential psalms. The goal then is repentance. It's a word covering several biblical ideas that range from regret to reversal, from changing one's mind about something to a complete moral or ethical conversion. In the Bible, God can repent in the sense of regret. He regrets having made Saul king in 1 Samuel fifteen eleven. But the more profound notion of repentance in the sense of reversal is expressed through the Hebrew word shub, which expresses the idea of turning back or retracing one's steps. So when we talk about repentance, we really mean to turn in the opposite direction and move in that opposite direction. So we change directions. It's a change of attitude and action from sin toward obedience to God. The concept of repentance differs slightly in the Hebrew and the Greek, but an emphasis on the change in behavior is consistent throughout both the Old and the New Testaments. In the Old Testament, the nation was more conscious of its collective guilt than of its individual guilt. In times of national catastrophe, it celebrated liturgies of repentance that included an assembly of the people, fasting, lamentation, and confession of sin. And we've seen that in the readings. They, it actually began just before Ash Wednesday on the vigil, and it has continued throughout the week. We see these lamentations and these calls to national repentance in the readings. 
And the prophets leveled strong criticism against any repentance that seemed to be nothing more than a liturgical rite. So this is not something that we're supposed to just enter into at Lent as a superficial kind of practice or something that we just do every year. It's meant to be a true conversion of heart. And no Hebrew word is an exact equivalent for the English word repentance. It was expressed by a number of different actions that show a change in thinking and attitude towards sin and God. And so they demonstrated repentance by public displays of mourning over sin, such as weeping in Ezra, tearing of garments and hair, and also in Ezra, I don't know about y'all, but I could probably, I'd be all right if I pulled my hair out. And wearing sackcloth, we see in Joel. It's actually in a lot of places, but we see that in the prophets quite a bit. Uh, they also made restitution for wrongs in First Chronicles. And then they would prostrate or abase themselves before a party that they had wronged. So there was a strong emphasis then on public display, making restitution to the person or persons against whom you had sinned. And that actually was, um, that happened every year just before the Day of Atonement. Restitution was to be made and public um, confession and that sorrow, that contrition was supposed to be public as well. So the Hebrew word that closely approximates repent or repentance is translated into English as return. And it it means, like we said, to just turn around and go in the opposite direction. In theological contexts, the implication is to turn from a road characterized by rebellion toward God and to a road characterized by obedience. So the emphasis then on is on the actions that proceed from one's turning and one's orientation toward God. And in non-Catholic circles, we called this a revival. We didn't have the idea of an ongoing conversion. It was more if you backslide, then you need to go to the altar and confess. There wasn't a whole lot of public uh, confession at all, although there's not so much in the Catholic Church either. But the term there was a revival, especially when it encompassed a whole nation or a, a whole church or a group of people. That term was revival. But we see it then here uh, in the Old Testament as a national repentance. And I think that this is very timely for us. And I think actually this is probably part of how and why the Holy Spirit has led us to do a meditation for these weeks on these seven penitential Psalms. In the New Testament, the idea of repentance as turning to God or from the Hebrew shub, is expressed by the Greek word metnoen. And Jesus' call to repentance is closely linked to the arrival of God's kingdom in his person. The Gospel of John speaks of that spiritual transformation as a new birth. So it's meant to be a whole person turning away from rebellion and toward obedience to God. And a lot of us have been trying to figure out what we're supposed to be doing, right? We see lots of Um, exposure of sin in our country and we see the direction that we're going and we feel helpless and I have been mentioning on the Facebook page that we're actually meant to feel that and I think that that's going to get even more clear I think we're going to see more sin come to light and that's what we've been praying for is a conversion and for all the sin to be exposed all I can say to that is yes Lord do it
You're listening to the Bible Study Evangelista Show. Bible Study Spirits That Taste Like Cake. Sonia created the Love the Word Bible Study Method just for you, based on Mary's personal practice and formulated for your personality and temperament. Get your Love the Word meditations every Monday morning by signing up at BibleStudyEvangelista.com. Now, here's Sonia. So we're talking about repentance in the Greek, and the Greek word for repentance derives from the verb meaning to radically change one's thinking. It refers to an event in which an individual attains a divinely provided new understanding of their behavior and feels compelled to change that behavior and begin a new relationship with God. And so the Greek language can represent the concept of repentance as an independent action, but the Semitic background or the, the, uh, Eastern background of the New Testament writers demanded that appropriate actions follow the event of repentance. And so we see that in examples in the examples of Zacchaeus, who makes restitution for the fraud that he committed as part of his occupation. We see it in Paul when he's preaching the faith that he once tried to destroy Onesimus. Onesimus was a runaway slave and he returned to his master uh, Philemon to face the consequences of his actions. So that's why James offers the most explicit comments in the New Testament regarding the relationship between repentance and action. So it's both a matter of the heart or an attitude, but also an action. And James argues that actions will follow, they should follow inevitably, this sincere experience of sorrow and repentance. So he places this rhetorical question, what good is it in James uh, chapter two, verse 14? And he's calling into question, not the effectiveness of faith in Christ without works to save the sinner, but the very presence of that faith. If the deeds don't follow, he argues that just as biological life in the human body is the basic process of breathing and circulation, the evidence of saving faith is in acts of justice and mercy that come spontaneously from this changed attitude of repentance. So he he says, your faith is dead if there are no works. So your repentance and your contrition are also dead if there are no actions that proceed from that sorrow of heart. And I tell people in RCIA, if you go to confession and you hold something back, your confession is actually not valid. If you're holding something back with God in this time of Lent, a particular sin, or if you have a sin habit or a cherished sin, sometimes the Bible calls it, if you're holding something back like that, then you're not actually repenting. And so the action must follow. And that's why Cardinal Sarah said that without repentance, there is no forgiveness. So we have to watch that. We have to be careful. And so we start with our own selves, right? But then also we want to to look back at the Old Testament meaning of the word repentance so that we can see that it, it, it means for us individually. But we need to focus as well, especially right now. We just finished that end time series. We need to be focusing also on this national repentance so that God can perform what I believe he is actually already in the in the middle of performing which is this exposure of sin and he's calling us then as we see it 
to repent on behalf of the whole nation, and we can do that. So the point then is that repentance is both an attitude of regret and sorrow and self uh, like, like to console yourself or to comfort yourself, but it's also an action of turning back or returning. It's a reversal of action. So we don't continue to do the same stuff that we've done. We change direction and we begin following. And I mean this both individually and nationally. We begin following God. And, and I know that we have felt very helpless in being able to do much um, to correct what we see happening in our nation. But we'll talk about that in just a moment. But I want to just mention that when we're looking at a particular word, we need to look at the first time that the word appears. And the first time repent appears as an attitude of sorrow is in Exodus chapter 13, seven, uh, 17. I wrote this uh, on a Facebook post on Thursday, but it says, When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although that was nearest. For God said, lest the people repent when they see war and return to Egypt. So he didn't lead them the quickest way because he, he knew it would scare them to death. He knew that confronting the Philistines in some sort of war to take back what was rightfully theirs would scare them. And so he led them the long way around and he actually displaced the people himself. God is the one who redeems us. All we have to do is follow him. But it's interesting that that's the first mention of that word repent as an attitude of sorrow and I think that applies to us then the first time repentance appears as an action which we've talked about that being a reversal of direction is in first kings chapter 8 verses 46 through 53 and I don't have time to read that whole passage but the context is Solomon dedicating the temple and the temple was the center of the national and the religious life of the people. And a lot of times we say that America was founded on godly values, and it was. No matter what the rewrites of history say, if you read the documents of the men who founded the country, you know that their heart was in following God and allowing freedom freedom to live in peace and freedom to worship in peace. And so it was our nation was founded on godly principles and godly virtue. And so this applies to us specifically. It says if they well, in in Solomon's case, he's dedicating dedicating the temple and he goes through this whole passage of, you know, when the people do this, you'll do this, Lord. And he and part of it, he says, if they lay it to heart which means repent in the actual Hebrew, if they lay it to heart in the land to which they have been carried captive, which I would say we kind of have been, and repent and make supplication to thee in the land of their captors, saying, we have sinned and have acted perversely and wickedly, then hear thou in heaven thy dwelling place their prayer and their supplication and maintain their cause. And so Solomon in the dedication of the temple is praying for God when the people fall into captivity to other nations and other uh, slavery. And this is a national slavery, which I would argue we have. We can't even speak freely online without being attacked by our brothers and sisters. And so the, all in all of these ways, there's so many things, and I know you know them, so I won't get into them, and I'm not going to get political, I promise. But I am saying 
that we have fallen into slavery, a type of slavery as a nation. And so this applies to us, and I think it should be very hopeful for us when we're talking about repentance. And so we are being called to pray these penitential psalms during Lent. And so we begin with Psalm 6. And sometimes this is uh, the context of this psalm is in speaking of illness, a physical illness, but it begins, it says to the choir master with stringed instruments, according to the Shemineth, a Psalm of David. So David wrote this Psalm. A Shemineth is a musical that this uh, first part is actually a, a musical notation and it's related to an eight stringed instrument. That's what they think the Shemineth is. And so the number eight is mentioned there and, St. Augustine thinks that that has something to do with the octave or the Sabbath, which applies to another psalm, actually. But we think that this eight-stringed instrument was probably a type of harp. And so there's a musical notation to begin the psalm. And then it, it begins in the first verse. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor chasten me in your wrath. And so we see there's this parallel rebuke and chasten, anger and wrath. And Psalm 6 was used in the daily liturgy as a prayer of penitence or confession. And it's used in the church's liturgy today. It was used uh, privately and individually, but also in the community, the Jewish community. And the church community also prays these prayers. We're actually doing it together now. But the um, liturgy of the hours includes these uh, in it as well. In a strict sense, Psalm 6 is not a penitent psalm because there's no confession of sin or a prayer for forgiveness. So it's actually categorized as an individual lament psalm. And we're going to enter into that together. It's offered as a lament for an individual in time of sickness and persecution. And because of that, it's appropriate to the first week of the spiritual exercises because St. Ignatius suggests that we see ourselves as sick persons roaming the world. So it goes, I'm not going to read the whole thing. I want you to put your eyes on it, though. I'm going to post it tomorrow, Friday. I'm doing the show on Thursday. I'm going to post this Friday on that, the first Friday of Lent, this first Psalm. And I want you to print it out and I want you to pray it every day of the week. We're going to do that for each of these. And so I'm not going to read the whole thing. I'm going to go through it line by line. But Augustine says that that first verse, that the word rebuke and chasten are meant to lead us to amendment and change in our behavior. So we're rebuked or we're, we are reproved by the circumstances that oppress us. And we're accused and all of this is meant to lead us to repentance or reversal. So it's it's meant in the sense of correction and not revenge. And that it was a big deal for me coming from the kind of family that I came from. I did not like the whole idea of God's wrath and his anger because it seemed very uh, it, it seemed like an act of revenge, like he was getting revenge on me by making me go through painful things because I had sinned. The words in the Bible for wrath and anger when they apply to God don't mean an explosive kind of anger in response to sin. Instead, it's an abiding, abiding resistance to sin. It's built in like gravity so that the book of wisdom in chapter eleven sixteen it says that that we are punished through the very thing in which we sin. The consequences are built in. And so because of that, God doesn't have any reason to react to us. And he doesn't. 
Instead, we incur the consequences. And even then, we don't always incur the consequences of our sin because of God's mercy. You're listening to the Bible Study Evangelista Show. Bible Study Spirits That Taste Like Cake. Did you know you can get Bible Study Evangelista radio notes and podcasts delivered to your inbox every Monday morning? Redeem your Mondays. Join thousands of your fellow listeners by subscribing at BibleStudyEvangelista.com. Now, here's Sonia. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor chasten me in thy wrath. And so we were talking about the the words for wrath and anger in the scriptures. And it's interesting that 10 times the Greek word for wrath or anger comes up in the book of Revelation. And it's a judgment in response to the beast and the devil. It's not a reaction, as I mentioned, or an explosion. It's an abiding resistance to sin, and it is turned directly on the beast and the devil in those passages in the book of Revelation. So we see that justice without mercy is reserved for the last day, says St. Gregory. So right now, there is mercy combined with that justice. And so that's why the psalmist prays in this way. And we have to think of this anger and this wrath when God talks about being a judge and when he talks about wrath and anger, it's unemotional. Imagine going to court for a traffic ticket and the judge screaming at you or jerking you around and throwing you in jail. They don't react emotionally, right? They just, they pronounce the sentence and then the bailiffs or whatever, they carry it out. It's not emotional. It's not revenge. (laughs) And so we just have to know that there will be consequences to sin. There always are. The wages of sin is death, the Bible says. But when the psalmist prays here, he says, rebuke me not in your anger, nor chasten me in your wrath. And so he's asking for God's mercy. He says, be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. O Lord, heal me, for my bones are are troubled. He means the strength and the structure of his being. My soul is sorely troubled, but thou, O Lord, how long? Now, St. Augustine says that the ineffable name Jehovah, or Lord, represented here, is repeated three times to insinuate that salvation must come from the Blessed Trinity. Now, I don't know if that's the case, but the fact that it's repeated three times is definitely important. Remember that to repeat something three times was to express the superlative of something. And so the psalmist then is begging God for help in in this oppression that he feels from sin. The description of bones and soul being terrified indicates that this feeling comes from deep, deep inside David. And so when we pray these verses, we can reflect on those fears that come from deep inside us, individually and nationally, when we see the sin that that we have fallen into both individually and nationally. And then we can turn to God and ask how long, how long, O Lord, before you ask. 
And in his suffering, we're not told exactly what it is that David is suffering, whether it's a physical illness, it it seems to be of some sort, but whatever it is, it's so oppressive that he feels it in his, in his body, right? Physiologically. We'll return to this idea in another Psalm, this physical um, manifestation of sin in our lives. But David turns to God as if to say, Father, my covenant faithful God. He uses the Jehovah term, the old Lord, three times. And he's, he doesn't confess sin, but he asks the Lord to demonstrate his covenant promises, which are restoration and loyalty. And so he, he almost complains that the judgment or the discipline of God appears too severe And in a manner that is characteristic of the Old Testament, he identifies suffering with judgment and judgment with God's wrath. Who can stand in the judgment of God? Certainly not anybody who is very deep in anguish and sorrow. Now, depending on your translation, uh, sorely troubled or troubled might also be translated as faint. And that word in the prophets actually means the process of withering of leaves and crops. So as a metaphor, it signifies the weakness of strong people. And it shows how the psalmist is brought down spiritually, psychologically, and physically. And I don't know about you, but seeing some of what's happening, it definitely does that to you. It's discouraging. It's oppressive. It feels dark. It feels heavy. And we can understand exactly what David is saying there. So he, he talks about this anguish, anguish of soul in this physical language. He talks about the, the fainting and the sorely troubled and in his bones. And so he's using these terms to express his, even his physical feeling of the oppression of sin. And it's, it's depth and intensity are expressed in that word bone, in his bone. So it's affected his innermost being. When the Hebrew, um, when the Hebrews use the word bone, they mean the soul. And so um, in that Eastern way, in the Old Testament way, there's no distinction between soul and body because a man suffers in his whole being. And so when he says the agony of my bones, he means the same thing as my soul is in anguish or I'm full of anguish. And the anguish is even more intense because it seems that the discipline is not measured against man's frailty. And it appears to have no end in sight. And so the the psalmist cries to the Lord to be uh, gracious and to restore him or to heal me. And he says, if not now, when? And it seems like God is almost carried away with his discipline. And he's, he's not thinking about the frailty of his children. And so verse 3 is kind of incomplete with that final cry of how long because of the intensity of his emotions, he can't even really complete his thought. So it could be translated or it could be written as how long will it be before you heal me or how long will it be before you deliver me? And that anticipates the next verse. But for us, have we not said that? How long, O Lord, will you make us endure this stuff that we see that is so evil and so contrary to your law and to your word, how long will you make us endure this? And so he says, turn, O Lord, and save my life. Deliver me for the sake of thy steadfast love. And so he's not dwelling overly long on that question, how long, because he's more interested in asking the Lord to save his life and deliver him for the sake of his love. 
And that word translated as steadfast love describes that covenant relationship. And it refers to the kind of love that exists when one has made a covenant commitment, which is a self-donation. God gives himself to his people. We give ourselves to God. And so the psalmist is bringing back that covenant to God's mind. He's reminding God of that covenant. And then it says, for in death, there is no remembrance of thee. In Sheol, who can give thee praise? And so he says in verse five, he's, he's appealing to God's interests. If the psalmist dies, he'll go to the place of the dead where no one can praise God. Now that term Sheol or Sheol is not hell. It was the place of the dead. And it, in the Old Testament, they just kind of looked at it as like a limbo place. They weren't sure. Um, they don't. They didn't have the developed doctrine of heaven and hell and purgatory that we have. And there's actually a psalm coming up where we're going to talk specifically about purgatory. So I won't get into it now. But it's interesting that 66 times it's used in the Old Testament. And 58 of those 66 are in this type of poetic usage. So David's saying, hey, if I die like this, who's going to praise you in the place of the dead? Heal me now and restore me so that I can continue to praise you. He goes on to say, I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed, my bed with tears. We're going to come back to that flood idea in a moment, but it means to drown. I'm drowning in my tears. And in Matthew 24, Jesus talked about the, um, the end times. And he said that it would be as in the days of Noah and that they were swept away in the in that flood right and so they they were drowning and he says i'm drowning in my tears i drench my couch with my weeping my eye wastes away because of grief and that wasting away is a a euphemism for growing old it says it grows weak because of all of my foes and so now he brings in these persecutors or these enemies he's bringing in the enemies and he's saying that he's drowning in this sorrow and grief because of what his enemies are doing to him now I don't know about you and I realize that we live in a first world country right and so our our um, oppression is largely spiritual but I feel it and I know you do too and I know that you have been almost brokenhearted in some situations where your families are split politically or they're split in the church and friends who were friends suddenly have such diametrically opposed positions that they won't even speak to you anymore. I mean, it has gotten so partisan and so polarized that we're not even allowed to speak about things anymore. And so I don't know about you, but maybe maybe you have cried over it. Maybe you have grieved over it. And maybe you have grieved over what's happened in the last several months. If you have, then you're in good company with David here. And he says that uh, he, he sort of draws this parallel between sin and sickness and punishment. And this was an Old Testament idea. They thought that everything bad that happened, especially illness and sickness and disease, was a result of sin. We see that in John 9 when the disciples go to Jesus and said, about the blind blind man, they say, who sinned? Was it this man or his, his parents? And Jesus corrected them and said, this illness is for the glory of God. And then he heals him of his blindness. But in the Old Testament, they believed that any sort of sickness was a punishment for sin. And we see that reflected here in verses six and seven of Psalm six. 
And then we get to the central point of the whole psalm, verses 8 through 10. He says, Depart from me, all you workers of evil, for the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my supplication. The Lord accepts my prayer. There's that threefold the Lord again. All my enemies shall be ashamed and sorely troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. I love that idea. So there's a public vindication. There's a personal and a social consequence for what has occurred. And we'll look at that when we get back. You're listening to the Bible Study Evangelista Show. Bible Study Spirits That Taste Like Cake. If you love having Bible study in your pocket, you can become a friend of the show. Click on the yellow friend of the show button on BibleStudyEvangelista.com and become a supporter of any amount and any frequency. Now, here's Sonia. We left off with the central point of the whole psalm in verses 8 through 10. And the psalmist concludes with this prayer of confidence that the Lord has already heard his prayer. And this is the confidence of our faith. Even when our enemies are still present, which for us could be sin, Satan, illness, it could be anything. The person of faith believes that the Lord will give him victory. And he waits for God to give him that victory. And our enemies will be sorely troubled, the psalmist says, says, the same words that describe the feeling in his own bones and soul in verses 2 and 3. So it's almost like it's going to turn back on them. And that's the nature of what God does. He uses all of our troubles for our good and for the destruction then of the enemy. And so we can have this hope and we, we can have this hope of victory because it is promised to us. Now, what is it going to look like? I don't know, but I know that it's a sure thing because God has promised it. And so that, that central point of the whole psalm is that God has heard my supplication. The Lord accepts my prayer. So those who mock your mourning, who persecute you for faith, who taunt your sorrow and your upset, they will be shamed. Whether that's in the church or politics, I don't know. But if you do the work of contrition and repentance and turn back to God and you cry out on behalf of the whole nation and you offer those troubles for yourself and for the nation, God will redeem us. And so I want to just end the show with what I kind of see personally. First of all, in these in these verses 8 through 10, we see that the consequences of sin bring taunts and hostility and persecution from our enemies, right? And we can we have experienced that in a lot of ways, and I believe that that's actually going to get worse before it gets better. And we can't really tell here, as David speaks, it could be that he actually went to the temple and, and inquired of the oracle there, the Urim and the Thummim in the temple. We don't know. But whatever it was, he starts to express this 
he's been heard. He's been heard, he says twice, and the Lord has accepted my prayer. And so as we pray this psalm, we have to be confident that God hears us. And so there will be a public vindication. David says that he saw it. The enemies were ashamed and sorely troubled, and they were, it was turned back on them. The same pain and sorrow and physical um, trouble and pain that he felt in his own body was turned back on the enemy. And so there is a, there's a vindication, okay? Now, I want to talk now about what I've been seeing in the readings. So Monday on the 15th, we got this reading on Cain and Abel. Cain murders his brother. And then the gospel was about seeking a sign. And Jesus said, you're looking for a sign and there won't be a sign. Tuesday on the 16th, we had Noah and the flood. I don't know if you know this, but Noah's name means rest. And so there was this flood and there's a cleansing. And the flood actually came because of humanity's violence, which we saw in the reading on Cain and Abel. There was murder and violence rampant on the earth. And so God cleansed the entire earth with that flood. And that's in the the Old Testament reading on Tuesday. But then the gospel, it talked about religious and political leaven. So it's both religious and political. Leaven is a symbol for sin in the Bible. And Jesus said, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which was religious leaven, and the leaven of Herod, which was political leaven. So beware of political and religious sin. And at that point, we saw in that Old Testament reading, those 40 days and nights of rain, we saw a 40 inside another 40. Because back in the, at the end of January, I want to say the 21st or 22nd, I can't remember the date, there was the reading on Nineveh, 40 days and Nineveh will fall, is what uh, Jonah was told to preach. And what happened was Nineveh repented. And it didn't fall. It fall, it fell in repentance, which is what we're after, right? We want the nation to repent. We want the church to repent. And it begins with us, and we can pray for that. And we should. We're seeing in the readings that God is leading us through this. So there was a 40 in the 40, the 40 days of flood within or cleansing within the 40 days of time in which Nineveh would be preached to and fall They were preached to by Jonah, who prophesied that Nineveh was going to fall for her sin, and instead she repented. And so we see in that Old Testament reading the cleansing of the flood, and the flood was actually, it it was a judgment of God on humanity's violence and murder. And then Jesus says, beware of the religious and political leaven. Then on Wednesday, Ash Wednesday, we have this call to penance. The call to Lent, 40 days of repentance. We see it publicly in the Old Testament as we looked at repentance throughout the show. And we see it it privately in the New Testament when we looked at James and the the way that the, the New Testament talks about repentance. So it's both an action and an attitude. And it is both public and private. It's national and individual. On Thursday... Then we have that Deuteronomy review, and that always happens. We see that in the readings when God is about to lead you to the promised land. That happened to me personally, but that's what happened in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy means second law, and I call it a review because Moses did a review of all that they had gone through 
in the wilderness as they left the place of slavery in Egypt and went to the promised land. And just before they entered, God had Moses do a review with them of all the things they had experienced, all of the calamities that they were up against, and all the ways that God provided for them. So we have that review on Thursday, and then Jesus says, take up his, his, your cross. So the promised land, what I'm saying is the promised land is in sight. What we've been praying for is on its way. It's in sight. We take up our cross, this Lent, whatever it is for you, and And allow for a national repentance as well. Offer some of your penance for the whole nation because the promised land is in sight. And then Friday through Sunday, we see again this national call to repentance and penance and almsgiving and all of the disciplines that we see that are included in Lent. And then Sunday, there's this great hope. The flood comes up again, but the flood is over. The rainbow appears And the promise from God comes and there is a fulfillment. So the readings are just pointing us to this wondrous thing that I believe God is doing. And it's as the flood was in the days of Noah, Jesus said in Matthew 24, as the days of Noah, so the days of the son of man will be. And in the days of Noah, everything seemed normal until Noah got in the ark and the the rain began and the cleansing began and some were taken and others were left. Who was taken? The wicked. They were swept away, Jesus says. And the the story in, in the Old Testament says, but Noah, whose name means rest, he had rest. He was left. He was left to repopulate the earth and to begin again in goodness. Now, I'm not saying God's going to wipe out all the wicked on the earth. I'm not saying that. This is a spiritual kind of thing that we're seeing happen. And we're seeing God bring light to the darkness. We're seeing the darkness. But with that darkness comes light because we can see how it should be. And that's really, that was that whole purpose in God, in that reading where God brings all those animals to, uh, to Adam to name. He's showing Adam that none of them are like him. He's showing him what is not right and what is not suitable so that when God presents him with Eve who is right and is suitable he recognizes her with this great excitement and joy and so I believe that what's happening is that God is directing us to this personal penance that includes a national penance so that we who are listening and paying attention to the readings and paying attention to what's happening in our nation and in our world can do penance on behalf of everyone. And I think that God is truly calling us to that. I think that we're seeing the things that trouble us so deeply and that have bothered us and that we've wept over and that we are horrified by and the things that are so backward and so untrue and unreal. And, and I mean, I don't even have to go into it. You know what I'm talking about. But God shows this stuff to us so that when the goodness comes, we recognize it with great thanksgiving and joy. And I believe that that is coming. I believe that that has, I I truly do. I think the readings are leading us in that direction. I have felt it. You have felt it. We've talked about it for quite some time that something is coming. And I believe that we're actually in the middle of it. I think it's going to be not the kind of like cataclysmic thing like a nuclear bomb or 
or a worldwide flood. I don't mean that, but I mean that the light is going to be so clear in this deep, deep darkness that we're seeing and experiencing. And as we see the light and as it dawns and as it approaches, we do that penance and we express our sorrow for what we see and we express our heartbreak over what we have allowed in this country to go on. And as we do that, we turn back to God and we determine that it never, ever happens again. And I believe that that is what God is calling us to in these seven penitential psalms and in the readings. And so we we add these penitential psalms every week in our study and in our prayer of them on a daily basis throughout the week. We add it to it. And in so doing, we are praying and lifting up the whole nation. And I believe that's our calling right now. It is my privilege to be part of this with you. I am Sonia Corbett, your Bible study evangelista. Thank you for listening to the Bible Study Evangelista show. Find out more at BibleStudyEvangelista.com.